Welcome to News and Brews. I'm Mike Heslin. And I'm Errol Yabake. And today we're talking about all things U.S. Congress. The good, the bad, the ugly, the movements, the non-movements. Um, and we're, we're going to fix it all in an hour, I think. Yeah, mostly, mostly ugly, we might find. <laughs> uh, we're lucky today to be joined by Andy Reynolds, Senior Vice President at Civic Strategy Group. Uh, he is also a longstanding friend of the pod, by which I mean friend of mine. And uh, it's just a really fun conversation. He's a really smart, funny guy as well. Uh, so really. Uh, and he had a good brew. Um, that he was working with down there, down there in North Carolina. Great, so great brews featured all around in this one. Excellent. Well, what do you say, Mike? Let's get to it. Welcome, everybody. We got news today that Senate Republicans blocked a vote on S1, the For the People Act, via the filibuster, raising all sorts of questions about Congress, whether that part of our democracy is doomed to stop functioning, and if it might just take the rest of the republic down with it. Uh, here to help us look on the bright side is Andy Reynolds, Senior Vice President at Civic Strategy Group, a public interest consulting firm that works for progressive candidates, organizations, and on behalf of progressive issues at the state and federal levels. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So, Andy, you're going to fix it, right? And we, we have like less than an hour. So <laughs> Congress, ready, go, fix it, right? That's how this works? <laughs> Yeah, super easy, not complicated at all by the U.S. Senate, no problem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Andy, do you want to uh, just give us a quick headline of uh, some of the main types of things you focus on and uh, maybe a quick teaser of uh, your your takes on what's happening in Congress tonight? Yeah, so I have spent my career working to elect and pass solid progressive Democrats and pass the policies that that those folks represent uh, in a variety of ways. And that's what I wake up every morning thinking about and trying to do. And I think today was obviously, it was not unexpected, but it was a, a really big milestone, I think, in the path that we have to walk to try to reclaim the functioning of democracy. And that is a honestly just a multi-year fight that we're going to be in that's super high stakes, but is, I think, still clearly winnable. And, and I think that's why Mike and I wanted to talk about this topic, which we'll dive into in a, lo a little bit more. But it, it feels like this is a moment. Uh, and it feels like it's a moment in our democracy. It feels like it's a moment not only in this Congress, but in sort of the balance of power. And so I think we'll, we'll be looking to unpack that with you. So thanks again for joining. You know, there's certain news stories that are just particularly inspirational in the direction of drinking beers. Uh, oh, like they inspire <laughs> you to imbibe? That's right. So maybe, yeah. maybe we should start uh, talking about this evening's brews. That was a stellar transition, Mike. <laughs> I'll kick it off. Those who listened to our first episode in podcast form heard Anna McCaffrey, global public health expert, talk about vaccine diplomacy. Uh, we got some feedback after that episode from her father saying, yeah, the content was good and all, but seriously, check out this brewery. <laughs> so uh, in honor of Anna's dad, I actually special ordered from North Carolina a six-pack from Green Man Brewery based in Asheville, North Carolina. Yes. I got the ESB to start, a special amber ale. And uh, I'll be honest with you, Errol, it has an earthy musk like fresh moss on a weeping willow at the first hint of springtime. 
And when it goes down, it's got a mouthfeel like easy jazz. Yeah, like smooth jazz, kind of like your voice, Mike, just like a little smooth and jazzy. It's making the whole evening smooth. <laughs> Andy, what are you working with tonight? I, man, I'm I'm just so intimidated by like, I can't come up with a <laughs> Catalina, Catalina wine mixer worthy like description of my beverage, but Please I am drinking. Please tell me you're drinking a wine mixer. I'm, I'm, I'm not, although I would certainly enjoy that. I'm drinking... Uh, the New Belgium's triple, their like take on the Belgian beer. It's delicious and like malty in the best way. It's certainly a go-to in my household. And I actually almost brought some over. I'm physically in Mike's basement right now for the first time recording news and brews. But instead of bringing over a nice triple from the New Belgium brewery, uh, I went with an Aslan Beer Company, which is, for those who have listened to previous episodes, Mike has raved about this Alexandria, Virginia-based brewery called the Aslan Beer Company. And when I was at the grocery store, I was sort of looking, and there were two options, and one was Baby Shark, and the other one was Power Moves. And I have to say, I opened up and I picked up the Baby Shark because I was like, I mean, obviously you would pick the baby shark, but then I remembered the subject of, of tonight and uh, I figured power moves was more appropriate. Sometimes there are no bad choices. You know, you, you can't see the label over audio because that's apparently how audio works, <laughs> but it's a really cool label. And I'm one of those people that sort of like a bug to light just gets like drawn to things like this. So I would say it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty powerful IPA, you know, move forward. Let's get into it. Let's do so the let's first round. On Monday, Raiders defensive end Carl Nassib became the first active NFL player to come out as gay. He made the announcement with a matter-of-fact video statement released on his social media, along with a $100,000 donation to the Trevor Project. It was so good. Did, did you watch the video? It was so I good. I it did. was, like, very inspirational and, like, matter-of-fact, and it was really good. Absolutely. And on a serious note, it took a ton of courage to do this, and we applaud him for being authentic to himself and hopefully paving the way for others to do the same. Um, and it has honestly been great to see current and former athletes across football and other sports show their support. And people like Warren Moon, Bo Jackson, Saquon Barkley, J.J. Watt, Julian Edelman. Now, with that out of the way, because I can't help myself, <laughs> his teammates have been suspicious for years. Ever since he told all the tight ends, he turned them into wideouts. Oh, Mike. Mike, is there more? <laughs> but at least next time it seems like the balls are deflated, we'll know where to look. Oh, you had to go the Tom Brady route, didn't you? Any any excuse to get it. <laughs> Is there more? Uh, well, we got some other sportsy news. I like sportsy news. That's like sports ball, but news <laughs> with Bruce. The Supreme Court unanimously sided with student athletes, ruling that the NCAA could not place limits on the education-related benefits schools can provide to athletes, in a move seen as opening the door to future expansions of pay for college athletes. Uh, when reached for comment, the NCAA president said, "Bah, humbug." <laughs> 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 I'm curious uh, for you guys, though, what which sports are you most excited to see some some payments into college kids? Oh, I think probably women's rowing. Okay. Long overdue. It was sort of like the at, at the University of Texas. Uh, it was kind of like a Title IX sport mm -hmm. where they would try to make up for the number of scholarships offered 
to the male football team with the the female crew team but honestly they were some of the best athletes on campus and i was like they should probably be paid because also they wake up at like 4 30 in the morning it takes a like, special yeah. kind of commitment and or masochism to row <laughs> seriously i have to i have to jump in here because i yeah actually my wife valerie was an all-american rower in college which is just pay like, her yeah it's an insane it's like how good at exercise can you be and how little can you do anything else is my summary of her experience as a college rower. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. For me, it's a toss-up, I think, between rifle and fencing. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really trying is to Is rifle an NCAA sport? It is. I'm, I'm really trying to make this like a mini Blackwater as much <laughs> as I can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like you're going to pay people for rifling and fencing got it all right enough sports the fed met last week chair jerome powell was remarkably frank about the unprecedented nature of our economic moment saying this is an extraordinarily unusual time and we really don't have a template or any experience of a situation like this we have to be humble about our ability to understand the data end quote (laughs) fortunately on news and brews we're under no such humility constraint (laughs) So we'll remind the chair that we already discussed how no one has any idea what's going on with inflation like a month ago on the main news and brews conversation. And uh, we're glad he's catching up. I feel like we're going to move markets here on news and brews. So we need to be careful what we say, though. That's right. We, we'll move from fixing it to breaking it. <laughs> we're not careful. Yes. Mike, there's some elections going on around the world. That's right. It's time for a new special on news and brews. <laughs> the sham elections lightning round. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we'll start in Iraq where a hardline judiciary chief, Ibrahim Raisi, won an election marked by low turnout and a widespread perception that Ayatollah Ali Khamenei was consolidating power by installing a loyalist in the presidency. I ran more like I wasn't allowed to run because I had ideas about reforming the theocracy. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. There was a there was a Saturday Night Live skit on this uh, years ago. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I ran. I ran so far away. Do you remember this? I don't think I saw that one. Oh, YouTube it. I it's... did see the old Rob Schneider, I'm from Turkey. <laughs> which we'll have to come back around to. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to come back around to that one. That's a really good one as well. Moving on to Ethiopia, where officials are still counting ballots in an election marred by violence and intimidation, including but not limited to the Tigray region, where Ethiopian federal forces alongside the Eritrean military are said to have used starvation, rape, and attacks on civilians and aid workers as weapons of war. Uh, I don't have a joke here because the Norwegian Nobel Committee already made a joke when they gave the peace prize to Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's problematic. There was actually a really good daily episode on this. Did you listen to this, the New York Times Daily? Was it? Re- oh, was it this week? It was either this week or last week. Yeah, and it was really good because they sort of walked you through everything and they mentioned that. I mean, it's like the most awkward Nobel. It's like more, way more awkward than giving Obama, you know, the Nobel for just being Obama. Right. Like they gave it to him and they were saying that one of the early warning signs was he didn't actually talk to journalists after he received, mm-hmm. like he made this big speech, democracy, great, yeah, Ethiopia, et cetera. And then didn't take any questions. And then within a year, just made a complete about face. And it was sort of like, if you were paying attention, the writing was absolutely on the wall, which is problematic. But sticking with sham elections, 
Go on. New York City has a mayoral election. That's right. And AOC made her mayoral picks. She also picked people down the ballot as well. But, you know, since a- AOC did it, it must be a sham, right? The queen maker. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was sort of trying to think about whether that's a good thing. And maybe, Andy, you have thoughts on this. But, like, does that ha- – it probably helps in fundraising. But does it help to have AOC's endorsement? In the New York City mayoral election? I think anything that gets your name out there in a weird cycle with a completely new way of voting, any candidate is going to welcome, frankly. Yeah. Like, any any bite at the apple. I didn't actually see. Who did she endorse for, for mayor? Wiley. And yeah, Strummer as number two. Which is a really good point. Like, for the first time ever, they're going to do ranked choice voting, which for election nerds is, like, a really big deal. Right. And also means we won't have any idea who won for weeks. Oh, yeah. (laughs) We probably won't know till like mid July unless it's really unexpectedly not close. But um, back there. (laughs) So there'll be a a paper press release that he takes a picture of and sends to (laughs) Maggie Haberman or whatever. Well, he took down the blog, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. He he would have put it on the blog. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It It was too successful. Andy, you mentioned that you have small kids or you have one small kid currently. Were you surprised uh, last Friday when when schools and daycares were closed? You know, it is like it was clearly a holiday that should have been true for that should have been there for a long time. And Ron Johnson, I guess, finally felt some ounce of shame, which is novel and interesting to explore about ways that that could happen again but yeah ron johnson republican senator from wisconsin and of course we're talking about juneteenth becoming a national holiday signifying the day when enslaved people were were informed that they were in fact free i remember like us so i have a four-year-old and a one-year-old and i was looking at the preschool and the daycare apps uh, one of which is called Hi Mama, which I really resent. The app name is Hi Mama, and and I think that that's ridiculous. But I digress. I kept refreshing these these apps, being like, "Is it closed? Is it closed?" And finally, around like 6 p.m., both of them were like, "Look, we wouldn't do that to you. School's going to be open tomorrow." Mm-hmm. And I literally heard the sigh of relief over the WhatsApp group chat. And, I mean, people were just like, "Because we would love to celebrate." in the future, but we'd like to be able to plan. And we're all just a bit scarred by the COVID daycare scares of, of the past year. So we're glad we don't have to do that anymore. Lots of fun surprises. Yeah, ours, ours actually was already planned to be closed for Juneteenth. That's that's probably the way that it should have been. And we'll be I mean, moving forward. No one welcomes surprise, no child care. It's just that's everybody's worst morning or evening or any day. But it did take that. an act of Congress. We, we mentioned Ron Johnson to, to make this happen. So in the spirit of acts of Congress. That's called a transition, folks. <laughs> On to our main story. There's a surface level story that is pretty well known at this point. Right, so following the 2020 elections and two surprise runoff victories in Georgia, Democrats control the White House and both houses of Congress, but only by the slimmest of margins. The Senate is 50-50, with Dems only controlling the agenda and committees because Vice President Kamala Harris can cast the tie-breaking vote. And even in the House, where you see a wider ideological spread within the Democratic caucus, the majority is just nine seats, 220 to 211. Seven weeks after taking office, President Biden scored his first big legislative victory when he signed into law the American Rescue Plan a nearly $2 trillion stimulus, which we talked about at the time on News and Brews, 
including direct payments to individuals and families, an extension of increased unemployment benefits, rental and housing assistance, increased food aid, and expanded child tax credit in the form of monthly payments to families through the end of 2021, massive funding for K-12 education and universities, and a number of other things. So basically everything that led to the inflation that we're having now. (laughs) (laughs) Shortly thereafter. Uh, the White House released two more proposals in the $2 trillion range, the American Jobs Plan, also known as the Infrastructure Bill, and the American Families Plan. These have not sailed through quite as smoothly as the Rescue Plan. Uh, we've seen a lot of ballyhoo about opportunities for bipartisanship. For a while, Biden was talking with Senator Shelley Moore Capito of West Virginia about a bipartisan solution on infrastructure, which fell apart. Now he's talking with the House Problem Solvers Caucus about a $1.2 trillion physical infrastructure framework they have proposed. Uh, And in addition to those spending bills, there's other legislation that's been stalled, including H.R. 1 and S. 1, which we mentioned at the top of the show, uh, which is the For the People Act that was strengthened voting rights and the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. To help us unpack all of this and where things might go from here, we're joined by Andy Reynolds, Senior VP at Civics, who's been working in Democratic politics for candidates, organizations and progressive caucuses since 2006. And actually, before that, I can speak to as well, Andy. He's managed campaigns at the local, state, and federal levels, served as IE director at SEIU, and a consultant for a variety of political committees, labor unions, and advocacy groups. Andy, thanks so much again for being with us. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So what's your sense of the agenda of Biden and the Dems in Congress right now and where things stand? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's no better illustration of the challenges of the U.S. Senate than than what we just saw happen with S1, which is you could argue that it's a little bit performative. But even, you know, Manchin and, and Cinema came on to take the vote to open the debate. And of course, that's that gets us to 50, which is not enough. So, I mean, that is the performative in what way, Andy? What do, what do you mean by performative? Well, it was a, you know, it was a vote to open debate. They're definitely splitting the middle on their politics in terms of like saying, okay, well, you know, we'll do this, but we're not actually going to take the next step to pass this law, you know, which we could do, right? The Senate sets its own rules. They could change the rules basically however they want to. So in that sense, they've, they've taken the stand, but no actual impact in law is going to be felt. On budget items, you have reconciliation to fall back on. And which is that's how sort they of got where we are. Nine trillion through was through right. the reconciliation process. Right. So it only takes, you know, 50 plus a tiebreaker to get those, those laws passed. And I assume we're headed to some version of that on infrastructure, jobs, 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 writ large, right? Which of course, uh, depending on who you're talking to and where we are in the moment, like includes a whole bunch of things that I definitely would argue are core to our infrastructure, just to our conversation about the importance of childcare a few minutes ago, like that includes the universal childcare, that includes family leave for folks who need it, all those host of other things, right? That I think the question that faces us next is like, how many of those things are Democrats in the U.S. Senate going to be comfortable pushing into a reconciliation package? So just to, to back up a little bit, we've got huge ambition, I think, in the agenda, and particularly where some of these spending items are concerned, right? The things we're talking about, free preschool, free community college, a full transition to electric vehicles, revitalization of the rail network, you know, essentially a basic income of 250 to $300 per child for upwards of 90% of families, Right. These are ambitious and potentially transformative plans. And there's a real needle to thread, I think, in both the House and the Senate, right, to pass a bill through regular order, meaning not reconciliation to overcome the filibuster. You need 60 votes, which means 10 Republicans and all the Democrats 
um, which means you basically need to find the intersection of like Lindsey Graham, Mike Lee, Chuck Grassley, and Bernie Sanders. That's that's uh, that's quite the Venn diagram. <laughs> yeah, aside from dinner at four, that's like the only thing. <laughs> I love dinner. <laughs> Same, actually. And then in the House, you've got a majority of just nine uh, representatives, 93 members of the House Progressive Caucus. So that same compromise, you really need the buy-in also of AOC and Pramila Jayapal, the chair of the Progressive Caucus in the House. And, and so it is a, a narrow path, let's say, there. You mentioned reconciliation, though, which is the uh, legislative maneuver in the Senate by which you can pass a bill with only 50 votes but is limited to spending provisions only. And I'm curious what uh, you meant, Andy, by saying there are there's some squeamishness or, or hesitancy to put some of those provisions into a reconciliation bill. Why, why is that? Well, I mean, I don't know, not to like wax poetic, but I think you do have to, like any analysis of this, you have to think about, and I, I think you laid it out clearly there, Mike, but like if you're a member of Congress at the House or Senate level, like your motivation is representing a certain set of people, right? And so- the Democrats well, I thought it was have. getting reelected. Well, well, sure. I mean, you could argue that that's how you get reelected. But yeah, <laughs> you know, the Democrats have this coalition, and what speaks to Joe Manchin in West Virginia may be very is fundamentally very different than a bunch of the other states. So I think that's the squeamishness, right? Is like Manchin in a less sort of comprehensible way to me personally, cinema, and then you know, there's probably a host of like ten Senate Democrats behind them that that get to kind of be anonymous by virtue of the fact that those two are out front, they're making a calculation about whether this advances their interest, you know, with their voters and, and serves their voters perception of what would serve them well, well. So I, I think that's the squeamishness. I think ultimately like Biden has done a really effective job at leaning in on things that are sort of crazy popular. Like if you take paid leave, which, you know, it's kind of nowhere in the, it wasn't nowhere in the conversation, but it was not in the middle of the conversation. Certainly when Barack Obama was president, you know, he's elevated it. It has, depending on the poll, somewhere between 75 and 85% support in the country. Like, so I think ultimately that squeamishness will be overcome on a bunch of critical things that will do amazing things for the lives of working people in this country. But that's the sausage making I think we're about to see. Um, and obviously a lot of folks are from the outside really making the case as to why, you know, these are these are smart things to do politically and more importantly, they're critical things to do for the future of the country, for getting, you know, the millions and millions of women who've been put out of work without any say of their own by virtue of COVID, which has uniquely hit women hard. And then even more so when you talk about people of color in this country. So that that's where I think we're headed. You mentioned a couple of things that are insanely popular. And I was wondering if you had some other examples. So today I saw one of these fancy Instagram videos where Joe Biden looks at you and looks deep into your eyes and talks about child tax credits. Do you think that the Biden-Harris folks are making these active calculations about what some of these low-hanging fruit things are? And if so, do you have a sense of what they think they are? Yeah, I mean, he's been talking about it in terms of the care economy, which is framing that he's definitely, you know, is supported by some of the labor unions who represent people who work in these sectors and a bunch of other advocates who've been working on this stuff for a long time. So definitely they're making practical political calculations and they know how these things pull and they know what their impact would be on the economy and for families. 
but they're also super popular because they would be an enormous help to a ton of people. I mean, this is where I'm, I'm the campaigns guy. I'm not the policy guy. So I can't accurately quote the numbers sort of out of a hat, but like basically like our economy is set up for a structure where you have one working parent, obviously historically and disproportionately a man and a parent who takes care of kids. And that is not only like not how we want to be structured or are structured anymore. It's not even possible, even if it is what folks want for most families. So anything fundamentally that addresses that reality, like you can sort of imagine a broad list of things underneath that. So it's leave, the childcare, which you mentioned, it's also elder care and long-term care, which is like a huge crisis we're staring down and is kind of catastrophically expensive. We don't address it. It's obviously healthcare and the cost of prescription drugs, getting, getting the education funding, Right in this country, et cetera. I mean, it's it's a long list. Minimum wage. They did just pass a however many hundreds of trillions of dollars of not hundreds of trillions. That would be a lot of money. <laughs> hundreds of billions of dollars of industrial policy and and sort of the excuse that I saw. I'm a foreign policy guy, Andy, and so the excuse that I saw was China increased competitiveness of U.S. firms. Uh, with China. Therefore, we need to reform our industrial policy. And, and it was a pretty big bill. And it just kind of like soared through. You you have some data on this, don't yeah, you, so that, Mike? That you did US, your preparation. The U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, a $250 billion bipartisan industrial bill that passed with 68 votes in the Senate a couple of weeks back. The bill overhauls and appropriates tens of billions of dollars to the National Science Foundation, includes $52 billion to support semiconductor research and production, and is, as you said, broadly seen as a bold move to counter the growing industrial strength of China. So I think it raises the question of, can we just tell Republicans that the Chinese hate it when we have a functioning democracy and social safety net? <laughs> I mean, I'm willing to give it a go. <laughs> I mean, I think you see things like that pass when they're not clearly weaponizable along partisan lines, right? And, and oh, by that, I, I really mean that, that like, Republicans specifically do not see a direct and short term downside for them, like because that's really what we're talking about. I mean, it's it gets both sides there. There are a whole host of Democrats who would be happy with a a more sort of centrist set of solutions and are happy to debate that. I mean, that's obviously Biden in some ways is among them. But if Mitch McConnell sees those things as things that will either help, you know, Maggie Hassan or Mark Kelly get reelected or hurt his chances in Pennsylvania, you know, North Carolina, Wisconsin, the big, Florida, the biggest battlegrounds in the 22 cycle, then it's a no-go. And so, like, this one is far enough outside of that, and the jingoism that Trump pushed combines with, you know, I'm a partisan, but my gen I think a, a Democrat's genuine interest in developing solid industries that are important for national security purposes and provide good jobs. And so, you know, there you go. We can work together on that piece. Yeah. Do you think there are other things out there that fall into that category? It's a good question. I mean, I don't, nothing springs to mind. I try to give this some thought before we have this conversation. And I think it is stuff that by virtue, if it fits that category, it's probably not a thing that we're talking about in conversations like these, right? If that makes sense. Yeah, it was striking how little coverage that $250 billion industrial bill got just because of the lack of drama. Well, and they, and they didn't say that they were going to 
pay for it by taxing rich people, which seems to be a bad thing. So, so I, I do want to get back. You know, we'll, we'll get to some questions about reasons for optimism uh, in the future, but there's a bunch of bad stuff to get to first. <laughs> so with, with the American Jobs Plan, the American Families Plan, as you said, and the most likely scenario is what happened with the rescue plan. They'll pursue a reconciliation path in the Senate allowing them to pass the bill with 50 votes, meaning they just need to get the Democratic caucus aligned. Of course, you do still have Joe Manchin saying he won't vote for a bill unless it's quote-unquote bipartisan, a stance which conveniently makes him the first, last, and only arbiter of what counts as bipartisan, which is why you see you know, Biden trying to get caught playing the bipartisan game uh, with Capito and the Problem Solvers Caucus, which some would call a gigantic waste of time that the country really doesn't have. But Moving on to some of the other non-spending yet very important uh, areas we talked about, right? The uh, you know, S-1, the For the People Act, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. A lot of this comes down to the filibuster. Under current Senate rules, can't pass yeah. anything unless it has 60 votes. Um, so I have a three-part question for you, Andy. Uh, Do you have a pen and paper ready, Andy? <laughs> Got to try and get over to the notes app. Sorry, Mike. <laughs> what do you think should happen to the filibuster? What are the, the stakes as you see them? And how do we get Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema to pull their heads out of their asses to see the light? None of which are leading questions. <laughs> I mean, look, I if it were if it were up to me, I would I would certainly abolish the filibuster tomorrow, um, tonight. I don't know if they're still in session. And move on these critical pieces. And obviously, like, the For the People Act, I mean, there, there's human crises that, that are not being addressed and that will not be addressed because of this reality, right? From immigration to the, you know, all the economic perils that people are facing to the police violence, et cetera. I mean, I'm sure I'm leaving out major things. But, like, so I would get rid of it tomorrow. I think that we should. I think that they should. I also have no, you know, illusions that they will. And, like... I have my criticisms of both of them, to be sure, but I take them at their word that they both sincerely believe that the filibuster is, is important to protect against um, bad effects, like uh, if, if and when the Republicans have a trifecta. So I think unless you can speak to that, particularly in Cinema's case, I mean, she, she laid it out in her op-ed the other day, like, that's what you have to go at if you're actually sincerely trying to persuade them. And I don't know. I mean, a lot of people smarter than I am have tried to make that case in a lot of different ways, and they're all well-made, but they're not particularly they – they seem to have fallen on deaf ears to this point. Yeah, yeah let's talk about that op-ed for a minute. So uh, yesterday, Monday of this week, Kristen Cinema, best known for addressing like a chaos puppet put out an op-ed in the Post uh, reiterating her opposition to ending the filibuster. In it, she praised bipartisanship as the only way to achieve lasting change. Why do these senators still think bipartisanship is a thing when Mitch McConnell has been pretty clear that it's a non-starter for like the last 10 years? Yeah, I mean, some of it's performative, right? And then in terms of like, Joe Manchin got reelected in West Virginia. Like, that's fucking bananas, frankly. <laughs> it's not a thing that should be... <laughs> should have been possible. So like that, I think, you know, rightfully gives him some sense that he knows better than anyone else how to navigate these complicated political waters. I think it's much harder to make that same argument. But I do think there's like a genuine and sort of like adorably naive belief on both of their parts that like 
at some point, the Senate was like some beacon of a republic democracy. I think that's completely false, but I, I don't think it's, it's not like that sinister, I don't think. Really, that's the place they're coming at it from. And truth be told, like, while I am 100% for like putting all the pressure on them in the world, I work for folks who are doing that, and we should do that and, and beat the shit out of them until hopefully they change their mind, even if they won't. The other thing is that like, we had a great U.S. Senate candidate in North Carolina who turned out to be kind of a piece of shit who might have erased some of these problems. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, this is this is the reality of the playground we're playing in. And, like, the Senate is, like, a fundamentally anti-democratic institution that preferences small states. And so I think we shouldn't be naive about, like, our ability to make our 50-seat majority change. And I would encourage folks who are frustrated, like me, by the choices that they're making to try to do whatever they can do to double down their efforts to flip more of these seats in 22 and hold on to the ones we have so that we have like a margin for error, like a one Senator margin for error would be amazing by comparison <laughs> to what we're doing with right now. <laughs> yeah. I have a pet theory on this that also contains, you know, some empathy for people like Manchin and cinema, which is like, we've thought for a long time that politicians have a public persona and a private persona. And that what they really believe behind closed doors is somehow like, the more important of the two. And what we saw during the Trump years is that actually they can be as reasonable as they want to be behind closed doors, seeing clearly that Trump is destructive or unstable or whatever it may be. And it won't really make their official actions as senators any better in the age of McConnell's leadership and Trump's total capture of the Republican base. And I think Manchin and Cinema are getting sort of seduced by whatever Mike Lee and Roy Blunt are saying behind closed doors. Like, you know, if you have a colleague that says, hey, this thing you're doing is interesting, let's work together on it. Uh, and they totally allied the fact that their success at your company depends on your failure in the eyes of their boss. Um, it's it's going to be tempting to work together. It almost feels like there's no reason not to. Well, and I think for me, it's like there's something called a good faith effort. And I think that in some cases and on some issues, there is good faith. And I think on other issues, there's manipulation instead of good faith. And I think... You know, when you read Barack Obama's memoir about his first term, you know, you read a lot about the ACA and Obama and sort of how essentially he thought that there was a good faith negotiating effort going on. And then over time, and he gave sort of, you know, space to his Democratic colleagues in the Senate to to move this forward. And, and it just wasn't happening and it kept getting delayed and delayed. And so I think what I said at the beginning of, of the episode about, you know, this feels like a moment is... I wonder if we're at a similar moment where there's such a lack of trust between the two parties and there's that that sort of supposition that there is good faith no longer exists. And therefore, what are other options? That, and, and I think this is why people people's frustrations are boiling over into like, OK, let's actually think more seriously about the filibuster and things like I, I'm personally a little scared about getting rid of the full filibuster, Andy, like midterms are not good to the incumbent parties. And and so what other things could pass related to, you know, women's rights choose and, and, and other things, you know, if we get rid of the filibuster, however, if, if it means that it's going to be a complete stalling of progress and, and the Biden-Harris administration's agenda for which they were elected to implement, then I'm torn. In, in that op-ed from Kirsten Sinema, she specifically called out the risk of ricochet legislating a post-filibuster world. 
saying, quote, to those who want to eliminate the legislative filibuster to pass before the People Act, voting rights legislation I support and have co-sponsored, I would ask, would it be good for our country if we did, only to see that legislation rescinded a few years from now and replaced by a nationwide voter ID law or restrictions on voting by mail in federal elections over the objections of a minority, end quote. And I think that's a pretty widely held concern. And uh, Ezra Klein has done a really good job of dispelling it, which he did again today in a Twitter thread that I retweeted. Uh, he gives a lot of examples of partisan bills in the Bush tax cuts, Medicare Part D, the Affordable Care Act, that by this logic should have been repealed within a couple of years of being passed, but have now been the law of the land for decades. Um, and as Klein says, uh, let the majority party govern and trust voters to judge them on results. I mean, I think that's more artfully captured. No one will be surprised that Ezra Klein said it better than I can. But I think, yeah, I mean, that's heresy. That's the task ahead of the Democratic Party, of President Biden, of Leader Schumer and in general is like we have to maintain we have to maintain a governing coalition. And part of that is delivering for them. And part of that is ensuring that that governing coalition can actually fucking vote again. Like, I think that belief is sincere from her. I also think it is wrongheaded. But I also think like these are the rules of the democracy that we live in or the quasi democracy that we live in. And like. We should all be clear eyed that like what we have to do is win above and beyond our sort of level of logical winning if we're going to overcome these things. Right. Like we have to get to a larger majority we have to somehow hold on to the House, even as like, you know, redistricting obviously threatens a very tight majority as it is. And 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 since it shifts, et cetera. But the good news is the things we want, people also want Part of this is just making the case more aggressively and more frequently to to voters. And part of that, frankly, like none of the folks that we work with are like, you know, I, I can't really speak on their behalf, but there are a whole host of organizations that are doing great work every day talking to voters and they need more resources to do that, to go out and make this case proactively of like what could ha- what can happen if we all participate. I think in 2020, we saw really solid investment in those communications programs and those organizing efforts. Um, But we still have a long way to go in terms of really reaching a scale that actually includes a lot more people in our democracy, which is, I think, the only path forward. Before I got into foreign policy, Andy, or, or maybe in between stints in foreign policy, I dabbled in presidential politics. And I have to say, as a, as a campaign guy, uh, I would have been disappointed if you didn't have a call to action pitch somewhere. <laughs> and so I, I ap- appreciated that uh, soliloquy. Just, just, just go give money you... to someone. That's my call to action. <laughs> but, but since you're a campaign guy, I mean, I wanted to pull this thread a little bit because both Cinema and Mansion and the 10 senators that shall not be named because they're hiding behind Mansion and Cinema, like, is it actually wrongheaded of them to behave in this way and to, and to sort of play this role, or if they just kind of voted with the broader caucus, would they lose their next election in the places that they live? Because I think that's the argument that I hear a lot. I think it depends. You know, I mean, you see John Tester has been all over the morning shows and the weekend shows, like making this case of like, yeah, the filibuster is a valuable tool and it's good to 
to have the rights of the minority party represented in the Senate, but like the water's edge on that is whether people can cast a ballot or not. I think he's he's somebody at underscores. Like obviously he's in a tough state in Montana. We just lost um, a seat there in 20, and it obviously went for Trump as we knew it would. But is out there articulating the argument that he's going to make to his voters about his stance. And then I I think it depends. I I do want to spend some time on like a slippery slope bad case scenario, and I won't say worst case because we just spent four years getting that term redefine basically every news cycle. <laughs> uh, but this seems to have taken hold on the left, and it goes something like this. Our hands are tied on anything that's not spending because we can't use reconciliation, including democracy reform, before the People Act or the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. Even if we do get these bills passed, it might already be too late, depending on what happens with the 2022 cycle while court challenges move forward. Meanwhile, Republicans in places like Georgia, Texas, and Florida are passing bills that will make it harder for Democrats and especially minorities to vote. Included in the reforms that won't happen as part of this never passed for the People Act or nonpartisan redistricting, of course. So you have an increasingly sophisticated Republican Party drawing the boundaries and rigging the rules around who gets to vote, effectively insulating themselves from any demographic or generational change working in Democrats' favor and entrenching minority rule in our country for an indefinite period into the future. Then you have this whole generation of people who engaged in the process for the first time to get Trump out only to see a bunch of Trump wannabes take over essentially permanent. Uh, So people then turn to apathy and disengagement, maybe even moving to Canada, and we're in this permanent downward spiral in terms of the quality of political life in our country. What do you make of this story, Andy, and and why should we not give in to despair? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some merits to all of it, right? And there's some stakes raising that people are doing that's totally legitimate, that's really important. But – It is not true that we can't win elections in tough places with the laws that are being passed, right? It just requires more work. It requires a different set of work and it requires more investment. So I think that's the thing. It's like, it's kind of an unsatisfying answer, but like it it varies by state. The, The stakes of the specific law, we have still a bunch of you know, outlets through the courts and and Mark Elias and others who sue against these laws on a daily basis are doing yeoman's work to make sure that they don't, you know, whichever ones of them we can beat back on legal grounds, we do. And then we just have- Yeah, like Eric Holder's group. Eric Holder's group. Eric Holder's group is great. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of legal defense fund. There's there's a bunch of great folks doing work on this. And, and so the courts is a refuge. Unfortunately, we have you know, a sane person in office again who's appointing a lot of great judges who are going to make a difference on this stuff. So, yeah, it, it all matters. But yes, we're not, it's not at all clear to me that like there is a particular domino that falls that suddenly America's over. I mean, enough of them do, and it certainly is, but I don't think that's this. Yeah, the, the best case hope for me is that I think on some level, if Republicans these days are only comfortable in a state of grievance, I think Democrats are only really comfortable in a state of despair and like our capacity for reason and hope tends to evaporate when we're confronted with like a sexy fatalistic narrative. And so I just, I hope that what's happening, that's what's happening here. Um, And I hope there's something that we can't see, right? People rewarding Biden for bold action or the Republican base not turning out when Trump is off the ballot or something like that, that like brings us in a different direction. That's the optimistic take. Right. Yeah, it's like that's like as far as my mental gymnastics. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'd like I'd like to live in that world. (laughs) 
It's like, yeah, the, the Simone Biles of mental gymnastics. Yeah. I mean, I just think like this is sort of why this whole and, and Andy, it's it's, you know, all of us that have sort of worked in politics. Oh, if we could only just talk to more voters and, and just sort of explain and. And I think that there's something fundamental about that. One's a party of grievance, grievance, and one's a party of despair comment that you made. Because I think that's that's actually really accurate. Neither of those is a good thing. But how do we get out of that? And I guess the question to me is, do we get out of that through bipartisanship? Or do we get out of that through something else? I'd like to, you know, I, you know, in, in some ways, perhaps I'm a little bit more like Manchin, like I rose colored glasses. I'd like to believe in bipartisanship and that that is a thing that exists on, on certain issues. All you have to do is just go to Ted Cruz's Twitter feed to see, you know, what grievance looks like. And I think on certain issues that he's talking about and others, I'm, I don't see bipartisanship. And I don't know if the answer is go smaller, go more targeted. I don't know if the answer is get rid of the filibuster, but I think that there, you know, there was an economist article recently about like has the Biden administration's uh, legislative agenda like run its course and we're like 4 months into the administration. I mean, a long time to go in this first. That's time. a pretty normal amount of time for things to like drop out of them. <laughs> Like, honestly, like, if you look back, it's unusual that you get something big done after that time. And I think they're about to get something big done, which is infrastructure through reconciliation. I also think, like, adopt Biden's take on bipartisanship, which is do a number of Republican voters support this idea. And, like, universally, all these things that we've talked about, they do. Not so, Republican like, members of Congress. Right. Republican so not voters. not famous coward Rob Portman, who at one point was supposed to be... <laughs> some sort of savvy operator who is going to help us like fix things, you know, like not the like many, many cowards who have just like faded into the wings of the party as Trump rose and then they're retiring. Like, no, like you're not going to make a deal with those people, but you can do things that are broadly popular and help a lot of people. And like, that's, I think the path forward. And I think that's also the path to, incentivize Republican electeds back to like, not back to sanity, because I don't want to give them that much credit to like at least opposing authoritarianism. <laughs> yeah. Well, on, on a note that's both cynical and hopeful, uh, I think if, if we're hoping that Republicans basically put the worst possible people on the ballot in 2022, and that's like our path, uh, they're kind of on the way. Like I know uh, New Hampshire holds a special place in all of our hearts in this room. And in the, the second district of New Hampshire, a man recently arrested after he admitted he entered the Capitol building during the January 6th riots and chugged a bottle of wine he stole from a Senate office has announced he's running to challenge Democratic incumbent Andy Custer in 2022. Strong. Strong. That's what he said about the wine. <laughs> he's only taking donations in anonymized gold, though, so that's going to be a challenge for him. Yeah. I, I don't think... I don't think Annie Custer's only going to eat his lunch. I think she's going to drink his wine. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, in Missouri, uh, Mark McCloskey, who gained notoriety for waving his AR-15 at people marching in protest of the killing of George Floyd and other police violence, is running for the Senate. So that'll be a fun one, too. Also, in, in other good news for him, uh, he was forced to give up his AR-15 by a judge. <laughs> but he just got a new one last week. Oh, good. 
just in time for Rene. Is he going to take it on the campaign trail? He was certainly waving it around on social media. <laughs> I'm sensing a trend here, <laughs> and it's not a good trend. Let's close on an optimistic note. Any other uh, reasons for optimism, Errol or Andy, and what you're seeing? Crickets. <laughs> I think there are gr- some great folks running for office in this next cycle. I do think we're going to get a we're going to get a good infrastructure bill that's going to do a ton of good things. And you know, it is worth not brushing past the one point nine trillion dollars that the Democrats and Biden administration put into people's pockets, which yeah. is like you know, it's a real thing for most of America, which is not something you can say a lot. And and I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I do feel like we've all kind of moved on from this like seminal historic piece of legislation that passed and got signed into law. And, you know, we're making inflation jokes out of it, but it's like actually a really big deal. So thanks for bringing that. I think the optimism for me is on the foreign policy side. I mean, I, I think that there's certainly areas and there there have been for a long time this is nothing new but I, I certainly think that there are areas where both parties can come together and and I do think that there's kind of a clear-eyed understanding of the challenge posed by our geopolitical competitors we're not resetting with Russia anymore we're acknowledging that they're a bad actor and sort of respectfully looking right. Putin in the we're eye not, we're not using the word reset with Russia <laughs> I'll give you that. No, we're we're not using it. <laughs> we are looking deep into Vladimir Putin's eyes and not seeing a soul. That's what we're doing. Um, but no, I, I think that there's just sort of a, a more clear-eyed understanding of the challenges that sort of geopolitically we face than, than we had. And, and part of that is honestly the Trump administration broke a lot of it. And so in picking up the pieces, you kind of figure out what things are repairable and which things are not. And, and I think that there's a bipartisan way forward there. Yeah, I do think that there is some hope to be found in the U.S. Innovation Competition Act that we saw, uh, we talked about earlier, right? A massive consequential bill that sort of flew under the radar. There could be more issues out there. That's the industrial policy bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then I also just call out this week, we're seeing the first hearings on D.C. statehood in the Senate since 2014. So nothing's going to come of it still, but you like to see it. Never thought I would be happy to see Joe Lieberman back in the U.S. Senate, (laughs) I just want to say. And that was a real twist. All right, Errol. Andy, safe to say we fixed it. I think we fixed it. Um, (laughs) Thanks, Andy. It only took an hour. Really appreciate it. Thank you all for having me. This was fun. Excellent. Well, thanks for being on, Andy. And thanks to everyone for, for tuning in. News and Brews is hosted by Mike Heslin and Errol Yaboke. Our guest today was Andy Reynolds of Civic Strategy Group. Our producer is Alana Nevins. News and Brews recordings happen live each Tuesday evening at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Join the live conversation on Green Room or listen to the podcast available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.